Amen. Well, Jesus is still doing what he's always done. He's saving sinners. He's changing lives. He's making disciples. And if you would ask, what do we want Two Cities Church to feel like? The answer is changed and transformed lives by Jesus. It's addictions being broken and marriages being reconciled and people being forgiven and families coming together. And I love the story you just heard, which is just many of one of many stories. It's the story of Connor. And he talks about addiction. Now, I told you this before, but the word addiction is not in your Bible, but the word slavery is. That's the biblical word for addiction. And if you find yourself in some besetting sin or some addiction, here's what you need to know. You worship your way into sin, and so you have to worship your way out. That's the story of Connor. If you ever find yourself, how did I get in this sin? You look back, and you'll see that you worshiped your way in, and you need to find something bigger. Actually, no, you need to find someone bigger and someone better. His name is Jesus, something bigger and better than your sin, and you worship your Savior, and that gets you out of your sin. And what you heard in the story of Connor I don't want us to miss this, all right? There's always two wings of an airplane when it comes to the Christian faith. There is forgiveness and freedom. Oftentimes, we talk as Christians a lot about forgiveness. I'm so grateful that Jesus forgives my sin and my past can be forgiven and my debt can be canceled, but often we don't want freedom from the sin we wanna be forgiven from. A true work of grace in a person's heart says, I don't wanna just be forgiven of the consequences of sin. Everybody wants that. I also want to be freed from the sin itself. And, you, you know, Connor was so, it's not easy to be as open and honest and vulnerable as he was. You know, he mentioned just, in the, if you caught that really quickly in that video, he mentioned there was a moment in his life where he thought about taking his own life. And I've not talked enough about suicide. And we're in a moment in our culture where on the other side of COVID, more and more people, especially young people, are having suicidal thoughts. And here's what I want to say. In a room this size, my guess is some of you have been there, or maybe you are there, and we want to be a place where you can talk to us. Here's what you need to know. Maybe you don't know this, and if you're talking to someone who's suicidal, this is a good thing to know. When it becomes a concern, it's not when someone has a suicidal passing thought. It's when someone has gone from having a suicidal thought to a suicidal plan. I know how I would do this. I know where I would do this. I've fantasized about what it's gonna be like and what life would be like after me and how the people who know me and love me would respond. If you've been there or you are there, we wanna help you. You can give us the fine china of your life and we're gonna walk with you. And we're gonna help you have the relationships and the resources you need. Because did you hear the, the final thing and then we're gonna get into Joshua. I, I hope you heard what, what Connor said there. Is he said, I needed not only to believe, I also needed to belong. That's the whole Christian life. I, I, I needed Christ, obviously, but I also needed community. In fact, it was him seeing his friend, who's also named Connor, get baptized and his life changed that led to Connor's life being changed. Let me just say this last thing. As we head toward Easter, and we're gonna have, I'll tell you a bit more about that next week. We're gonna have a Thursday service and a Saturday service and three Sunday services. We're gonna celebrate baptisms on Easter. And we can think of no better way to celebrate Easter than with baptisms. We can think of no better day to get baptized than on Easter. And we feel like, man, if you've, if, what, there's no better way to show I believe in Christ and I belong to the people of God than through water baptism. So if you've not taken that step, we would love to celebrate with you Easter weekend. Let's pray. And then we are going to dive into the longest battle, most detailed battle in the book of Joshua. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for the story of Connor, uh, just his humility, his honesty, his vulnerability, his transparency to share about the pains and pressures and problems in his life and what led him to place his faith in you, Lord. And we pray to be a place of transformed and changed lives. We pray that that's what categorizes our homes. That's when we look back, that's the story of our community groups. One of the ways that we see that is in baptism, Lord. So I pray for people this Easter on Resurrection Weekend to step forward and publicly profess their faith in Christ and say, I believe in Christ and I belong with the people of God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever wanted a second chance? If you're older than 20, the answer should probably be yes, right? Okay. Uh, it's interesting. The first time maybe someone wants a second chance in life is uh, when they get out of college and they realize, what was I doing in college, right? I, I, if I could go back, I would do something different. I wouldn't have got a degree in Russian literature. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend that. Or, or, or people go back and they say, why did I go to college, right? The boomer generation felt like they had to send all the millennials to college. And everyone's like, well, now I just have a lot of debt and a degree I'm not using. Why did I, what if mom and dad would have given me that money and taught me how to rip and flip houses? That would be different. Sometimes people look back on their career. I'm like, why did I choose this career? A lot of people, as they get older, especially if they're still single, they look back on certain romantic relationships and they wish they could have a second chance. Maybe I was a little too picky because I'm older now. Maybe my standards were a little too high. Sometimes people get to retirement, right? And it's like... (laughs) They're 65, they're 70, and they're like, we didn't save enough money for the last 40 years. And so now we can't retire, or we can't retire how we want to, or I've got to keep working. The whole point is we all have these desires in our lives where we cry out for second chances. Sometimes it's in parenting. Most times it's not the whole time your kids are in the house, but you'll meet somebody and will regret a season with their kids. I traveled too much when they were young. I regret that in those teenage years, I wasn't more involved at the friendships that they were making. Well, here's the sobering, sad, hard truth to begin with. In most of life, you don't get a second chance. You get one body. And sometimes you make decisions and you have to live with the implications on your health. You get one first marriage. You get two to four kids you get one, maybe two career opportunities in your life. If you'll turn to Joshua 8, what we're gonna see is that Joshua gets a second chance. This is the good news of the gospel. The grace of God is, for many Christians, the grace of God is a theological concept. I understand it, but I haven't needed to experience it. When you need a second chance, when you've blown it, when your life has fallen apart, when you've sinned grievously, when you get caught, when you get sick, and all of these things are going to happen to us, to some of us, you're gonna need the grace of God. And so what I want us to see today, and here's the big idea for the whole sermon, Jesus finds us after the failure and helps us fight again. I'll show you this, look look at verse one. So if we go to verse one, look, it says this. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Now, when I started to write this sermon this week, I kind of, you know, diagram the text and I kind of think, what am I gonna talk about? And I read the text and I wrote the first thing down because I knew I was gonna want to talk about failure and discouragement. The first thing I wrote down was, um, 
when you fail, turn to God. And I thought, that sounds like a good point. That sounds biblical, and it is biblical, except I read the text wrong. It's not that Joshua fails and then he turns to God. It's that Joshua failed and then God turned to him. That God pursued him, that God went after him. And what's interesting is God brings to him the exact same word he brought to him seven chapters earlier. And the key part of this, by the way, God 366 times in the Bible says, do not fear. But there's only a few instances where he adds this idea of do not be discouraged. Now, why was Joshua discouraged? Well, because he just sinned, he just experienced defeat. Here's what, we don't know for sure. I'm, I'm, I'm using my imagination, my sanctified imagination here a little bit. But here's what I think happened. I think Joshua sinned, we know that from Joshua 7, and that he dealt with it. He repented, he dealt with it, but then he thought something like this. Okay, God's not angry at me, but I don't know if God's for me. I've felt that before. I don't know if you guys have ever felt like that. It's like, okay, I understand the cross. I know I'm forgiven. I know I'm headed to heaven. I know I'm gonna make it through the final judgment, but I've done some really stupid and sinful things. And I'm not sure if God uses people like that anymore. Right, we always say God hits a straight shot with a crooked stick. We just don't believe it, especially not in our lives. But that's the testimony of scripture. I mean, Abraham was 70 years old living in his mom's basement. It's the ultimate failure to launch story. And God comes to him and says, you know, you're kind of pathetic, but that's the kind of person I can work through. And then Abraham ends up lying, and God has to work through that. And then Moses ends up being angry, and God works through that. And then David ends up murdering and committing adultery, and God works through that. And then Peter denies him, and God works through that. And then Paul, when we first meet him, is a blasphemer and a persecutor, and God works through that. Here's the first point. I've got three things I want us to see from this text today. The first thing is God chooses and uses failures. He doesn't just use failures. He chooses failures. One reason would be because there's no one else to work through, right? That's it. So we all wrong. But the other reason is when, when God works through a failure, it's obvious that it was God's grace and God's goodness and God's big and we're small and God gets the glory. So what I want us to see is a couple things. First, notice like I told you before that he gives him the exact same word. Be strong, courageous, do not fear, do not be dismayed. What happens in your life is as you get older and as you enter into a new season and a new stage, and there's many of those. It could be college, and then uh, I'm dating, and then I'm married, and then I have kids in the home, and then I have older kids, and then I'm an empty nester, and then I'm whatever it is. In every season and stage of your life, you need to hear the old words from God in a new way. Notice, he doesn't come to Joshua and say, I've got a new word for you. I have the same word for you that you need to re-experience. Like, I'll, I'll tell you a story. Tim Keller, you've heard me talk about him. Many of you know who that is. He's a, he was a pastor in New York City. Before he was a pastor in New York City, he was a professor at Westminster Seminary. So for about 40 years, this guy, maybe longer, this guy taught the Bible. And then imagine this happening to you, but at 70 years old, you go into the doctor and you find out that you have stage four pancreatic cancer. Which I'm not a doctor, but from everything I know, that's as close to a death sentence as you're gonna get. And so he says, I'm sitting, imagine this, I don't know what he had to go through, chemotherapy, whatever they have to go through. I'm, I've got the news, I'm sitting on my bed, hospital bed, reading the Bible. And for the first time, the resurrection was real to me. I said, dude, he taught probably a seminary class on the resurrection. He probably understands every place in the Bible where the resurrection, 
is talked about. But what he didn't ever have before was like that, I'm dying soon. My body's falling apart. And the only hope I have is the resurrection. We had an interest. This has happened a couple times in our church. We, but about two or three months ago, we had an older guy in our church. And he reached out to us. And he said, hey, guys, can you... um." Can all the elders in the church pray for me and anoint me with oil? I'm really sick. I said, yeah, of course. What service can you come to? Let's do this. And so there's a verse in James that says, if you're sick, call the elders and anoint them. So we're back in the room back there, and I'm, and I'm got him, you know, he's there, and I'm leading the time, and I said a couple words, and I asked him how to pray for him and all that, and I said, is there anything you'd like to say? And as you guys know, most of the pastors in our in our uh, on a church are pretty young. So we're all young men in there praying for this older man. And he looks at us and he says, years ago when I was a young man, I read this verse. If you're sick, call people to pray for you. He said, and today I need this verse. I don't know what word you're going to need. This is why you're going to want to know the word of God. There will be a moment where you're going to need to know there's no now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You're going to, that's there you There's going to be a day you're going to need that word. There's going to be a day where the word, I will never leave you or I will never forsake you, will be very sweet to you. So what Joshua needs to learn is multiple lessons from his failure. And and that's why, by the way, the Bible says failure can be a good thing. Because there's this interesting text. It's in um, Ecclesiastes. It says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of laughter. And I'll tell you how I've seen this as a pastor. Um, I don't, I used to do a ton of weddings. I don't do as many weddings anymore. But my preference is to always do a funeral over a wedding. I don't want to do funerals, but if I, if, if there's, hey, you can only choose one, what are you going to do? 100% the funeral. Because every time I've ever spoken at a wedding, no one's listening to what I'm saying. They're like, is it an open bar? <laughs> is it, is it, uh, is there a live band? What food will they have here? Oh, the couple looks so cute. Well, you know, no one's listening. But when you're at a funeral, everybody's leaning in. And I mean, people don't even know if they're saying something like, I, there's something I need to learn here. There's something I don't know. Failure can be a great teacher. They've said, you probably heard this, the worst type of failure is succeeding in that which does not matter, which defines most of Americans. They're shallow and they're surface level. And they're succeeding in that which doesn't matter, which makes them prideful and feel like they don't need God. If you look at, if you look, continue on, you'll, you'll see another lesson that Joshua has to learn. Turn to, we're continuing in, in verse one, it says this. He says, take all the fighting men with you, arise and go to Ai, for I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. Uh, the second thing that Joshua has to learn is that what God wants to do, God wants to do through all his people. See, what happened with Joshua, if you go back to chapter seven, which is, uh, we did, talked about two weeks ago, you have this situation where Joshua only sent a few people. Remember that was part of, he he didn't send all of God's people. Here's the principle. I don't need to talk about this for long. What God wants to do, he wants to do through all of us. What we need in the church is, based on this text, an army culture, not an audience culture. See, what happened, and I'll try to explain this briefly. What happened is uh, after the Reformation, which happened in the 1500s, there became the professionalization of occupations. And so medicine became professionalized, which was kind of cool. And so you, you started to go to school and you started to wear the white coat and you start your professional, great. And then law said, well, we should probably do something like that too. And so law, and you go to law school and you get that, you know. And then the church said, we should do that. 
So you, what happened was the professionalization of ministry. And so what ends up happening in that kind of culture is there's an audience that comes to watch the professionals. I heard one guy said that when the church is not working well, it's like a professional football game. There's 22 professionals on the field dying of exhaustion and needing rest, and there's 100,000 people in the stands needing exercise. <laughs> and I thank God that that's not the culture of our church. But it's just a great reminder that what God wants to do, he wants to do through all of us. And here's, here's what that means. We say it this way here. We want you to be on mission, just like I'm trying to be on mission, our staff's trying to be on mission, wherever you live, learn, work, and play. And you do it two ways, by ministering out of your life stage and your lifestyle. Your life stage is just, you gotta know yourself. What's the, you're like, I'm, I'm uh, single again, I'm single. Uh, we're married with young kids in the house. Uh, I, I'm uh, empty nester. Okay, that's your life stage. Minister out of it. In certain life stages, you'll have more time. In a certain life stage, you find when your kids are in the home, it's like, oh my goodness, my main place of ministry is going to be my kids' sporting events. I never do that. That's my life stage. And then your lifestyle is, what do you like to do? I like to drink coffee. I like to work out at the gym. I like to cook. I'm under 30, so I play pickleball all the time. You know what I mean? Whatever your lifestyle is in your life stage, we minister out of that. But then there's another thing he needs to learn, and he needs to learn to wait. Look at this, verse two. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city and behind it. Uh, here's what's interesting. God says in the battle of Ai, you can keep the plunder. And I, and I showed you this a few weeks ago, but in the battle at Jericho, he says, no, 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 all the, all the gold, all the silver, all the bronze, all the iron, give it all to me. I want, I want all of the first. But then he says, at AI, keep all of it. You guys can keep it. What's interesting, you know what it made me think of? It made me think of Achan. I don't know if you ever had this thought as you're reading this. Wait a second, if Achan would have waited one more battle, he could have had the gold and silver without having to try to steal and hide it. I heard a mentor say one time, he said, there's three elements to obeying God. He said, first of all, you gotta find out what God said. You just read the Bible, you go, that's great. And, you know, and, and then and you go, I wanna do this. And then you run off because we're excited to try to do it. And then you go, oh, I forgot to look at how God wants me to do this. So God first gives us what, and then he gives us how, and how's always the opposite of how you think it's gonna be. And then he said, the final thing God often will reveal to us is when. When is the right time? It's not just what, it's not just how, it's when. It's not just God's word in God's way. It's God's timing. Sometimes sin is wanting something that God is going to give us, but wanting it too early. Many people get in lots of sexual trouble because they want sex, but not on God's, not according to God's word, not according to God's way, and not according to God's timeline. So here's what happens. He learns from this failure, but then I want you to see the next thing that happens in verse three. The battle begins. It says this. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. The, the second thing I want you to see is that Jesus helps us fight the battle after the failure. So he finds us after the failure, and then he's gonna help us fight the battle. Now, when I was first reading this text, I was like, what am I going to say about this? because it's 27 verses in a row of a detailed combat battle. But then I started thinking, wait, wait, most of the Bible is, well, a lot of the Old Testament is battles. I mean, the first battle in the Bible is between 
Satan and Adam and Eve, right? That shows up early. If you go to Genesis 4, you don't need to turn there now. After Cain kills Abel, we get the lineage of Cain. And if you read a couple verses down into like he begat him and he begat him and he begat him, from Cain's lineage, we get, you get a couple generations and it says, so-and-so who made weapons of warfare. Okay, Genesis 4, there's already an industry for weapons of warfare. Genesis 14, we have the first battle in the Bible. So battles show up early. And I know some of the ladies, especially, they're like, I don't like all the soldier imagery. Well, well, ladies, the men have to put up with being the bride of Christ, okay? So we, <laughs> we each have imagery that makes us feel a little uncomfortable at times, okay? But what I want us to see from, from this battle is a couple principles. Now, the, now, maybe the first principle over all these principles is that every battle is different. So if you go back, that's why I can't abstract too many things from this, from this battle, because if you go to um, the battle at Jericho versus the battle at Ai, so chapter six versus chapter eight, they're completely different battles. Jericho was a miraculous battle where God does all the work. In the battle at Ai, they do all the work, humanly speaking. Um, the battle at Jericho happens at day. The battle at Ai happens at night. The battle at Jericho, they're told to do one thing. The battle at Ai, they're told to do four things. Maybe here's the principle. Every battle in your life is gonna be different, and there's no formula. A lot of times people want a recipe. Give me the recipe for lust. Give me the recipe for a good marriage. Sorry, there's no recipe. There's a cookbook. <laughs> Do you wanna have the whole Bible and read all of it? And, and by the way, how do you deal with battles that are all different? The word of God and wise counsel. You got, I, I need passages and people. I need books I can read and people who can read me. That's what I need in every, it's word of God, wise counsel, two wings of the airplane. But what I will do is, is try to show us what I think are three or four helpful principles from this battle that help us fight the battle that we have against sin. The first one shows up in verse four. Let me show you this. Verse four says this, and he commanded them, behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city and behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. First principle is when you fight the battle in your life against sin, you need to ambush your sin. Maybe you never thought about that. What does ambush mean? I surprise attack it and I hit it with all that I can. Are you still dealing with the exact same sin in the exact same way? way that you've been dealing with it for months or years or for some of us maybe decades. It's because you've not ambushed your sin. What does ambush mean? It means a surprise attack. Let me ask you this. What does your sin not expect you to do? It's kind of weird to talk about sin as like personify it, but that's the way the Bible talks about it. Remember, God says that one of the first mentions of sin in the Bible, God says to Cain, Cain, Sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to have you. It's like, yikes. That's the personification of sin. What would you do? What could you do that would surprise your sin? Let me give you two things because whenever I meet somebody who's still stuck in their sin, they have usually not done these two things. The first is they've not taken extreme measures. In my biblical counseling class that I took in the seminary, I learned that when someone's dealing with sin, the first thing you do is make sure everybody's safe. Because there could be some kind of sin where it's like it's not safe, like they're harming themselves or they're harming someone else. But after you deal with the issue of safety, the next thing you do with sin, if somebody's stuck in the sin, is you say extreme measures. I know you might say, well, what do you pray about it? No, no, no. Don't you read your Bible? No. Don't you journal about it? No. You create, you do an extreme measure so you can give yourself the space to read your Bible and pray and journal about it and come up with a plan. 
extreme measure is, well, you heard it's in the name, it's extreme. Back when I was in college, I'm going to date myself here, there was not yet Wi-Fi. I know, we rode our dinosaur to college. It was a long time ago. But um, I remember I was, there was a guy in my hall, good Christian brother, but just was struggling pretty severely with pornography. And one night I hear a knock on my dorm and I open up the door and it's my friend and he goes, here. And it was his ethernet cable. Some of you go, what is that? Okay. <laughs> Back in the day, you had to plug in a cable into your computer and then plug it into the wall to get the internet. And it was a, I remember when he gave it to me going, this feels extreme. You're not going to have the internet in your dorm. You're going to have to go to the library every time you want to answer. There was no smartphones. You're going to have to, you know, you just made your, that's what extreme measure does. You just made your life a lot more difficult. Extreme measures feel extreme. When you're about to do them, you and your wife are like, we probably shouldn't even tell our parents because we're about to pull her out of school. We're about to pull our daughter out of school, and it feels crazy. But her friends are destroying her life, and we've got to do something. It's like when you're just like, the wife and the husband is just like, we're the couple who needs professional counseling. There's nothing wrong with that, but people will feel like there's something. We, we, that's who we are. We need to go public and pay money and sit with a professional because that's because our community group leader cannot help us with this. This is this knot needs deeply untied. I need to go to some twelve-step program. You get it. These you understand why people don't do this stuff because it's extreme. And we keep telling ourselves why we don't need to do it. The second thing is accountability. And by the way, sometimes the extreme measure is the accountability as well. Accountability is, is accountability doesn't work unless it's welcomed. We've all been in accountability groups. It's like everybody's lying to everybody. And everybody's hoping you won't ask the question that, that needs to be asked. And everybody's really vague in their answers. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about accountability that's welcomed and invited. And here's the thing. With, with sin, most sin that people are addicted to and that are besetting in secret, there's shame connected to the sin. So this is why the person closest to the person finds out last. It's not that they're trying to be, I mean, maybe they are. It's not only, let me say it carefully, it's not only that they're trying to be deceitful. They've thought about telling you. They're just like, you, you've been there sometimes. Who could I tell that's close enough to me that could help me but won't, won't completely judge me and destroy our relationship, right? And you need accountability with somebody who's farther ahead of you. You can't have accountability with... We all want accountability with the person who also struggles. Hey, you also struggle with this. Let's see who can struggle less this week. It doesn't work. First thing you have to do is you have to ambush your sin. Second thing you have to do is get creative. Look at verse six. I'm sorry, verse five. And I and all the people will, who are with me will approach the city, and when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. So again, I have to keep going back to chapter seven. In chapter seven, when they get beat up, and they lose 36 guys. If you remember this story, they, um, they retreat and uh, they're fleeing for the battle and AI gets them, attacks them, kills 36 of them. 
So what Joshua is saying is, hey, guys, let's trick them. I mean, I don't know how else to understand this text. This is clearly a let's fool, prank, deceive, <laughs> get creative with this battle. Here's my question. What do you have to do to get creative to fight your sin? What you're going to find is the deeper in sin you are, the more creative you will get at doing the sin. You become like an expert. You become like a professional. You're like, I can do it. I know where to hide it. I know where to buy it. I know what browser to open. I know how to clean it afterwards. I know what to say I was doing while I was doing it. I mean, you will wake up one day a year or two into something, and you'll go, how did I become so good at this sin? You need to use the same creativity to fight the sin. Some of you, if it's, like, if it's into making money, you get super creative. You're the most creative person we've ever met. When it comes to fighting your sin, you are boring. <laughs> and, I, and I thought about this. I thought, who is being creative today? You know who I thought of? Because I, I thought, I'm like, who's crafty and creative? Because Jesus tells us to be wise as serpent, innocent as doves. We only obey half that verse. We're just innocent as doves. Most Christians are nice and naive. Jesus says, be innocent and innovative. I thought of the Babylon Bee. Does anyone know who the Babylon, I'm hoping maybe half of you Google it afterwards if you don't know who they are. The Babylon Bee is a group of Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians who started a satirical news site. And I mean, it's taken off. And I thought to my, I don't know that they articulated it this way, but this is how I understand what they did. They were trying to figure out how do we deal with a goofy culture that is full of ideology that's full of wrong beliefs and terrible behaviors, and somebody said, let's make fun of them. And I laugh at almost every Babylon Bee article. I've, you know, they're just, it's so clever. And do you know this? Do you know that the Babylon Bee made a funny article, uh, made fun of some of the goofiness of the gender ideology, and they got kicked off Twitter? This was uh, a while ago. And Elon Musk liked the Babylon Bee and saw them get kicked off Twitter. And that's ultimately why Elon Musk bought Twitter. Who would have thought a few guys, Christian guys, going, let's make fun of this, would create something where Elon Musk spends $42 billion to buy Twitter? We have to get creative. Third, we have to know our enemy. What he's going to say here is he's going to know what they're going to do. Look at verse 6. They will come after us. Until we've drawn them away from the city, for they will say they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. Um, do you know, he, basically what I'm trying to show you here is if you look, read the text, Joshua knows what the enemy's going to do. The only good thing we can say about Satan is he's utterly predictable. Amen. He's like the eagles. He's living off his old hits. Okay, guys? I mean, think about it. You, you, you look at the, if you do a study of what were the temptations of Adam and Eve, the temptation to have, the temptation to be, the temptation to feel, and then you go over and you look at what were the three temptations of Jesus in the desert, it was the temptation to have, and the temptation to be, and the temptation to feel, and then you realize, okay, I guess the major three temptations in life are sex and status and salary. Power, possessions, position, pleasure. I mean, there's not that many. I mean, there are 
thousands of variations of those temptations, but let's be honest. There's just a few major temptations that we all know that we're gonna face. In fact, if I were to get up here and say, hey guys, I've got bad news. You know, there was a pastor in Wyoming and or there was a you know politician, you know, in Nebraska and he had a moral failure. What are you gonna think? You're gonna think one of like four things because like I know how this happens. Let me guess, was it sexual in nature? Was he addicted to something? What did he do financially? Was it abuse? There might be a couple other categories. So here's what's interesting. The Apostle Paul says, he has this interesting text in either 1st or 2nd Corinthians. He goes, we are not unaware of Satan's schemes. This is what he writes to the church. Unfortunately, we are sometimes, guys. Paul wasn't. Unfortunately, we are. Like, let me ask you a question that was asked to me. I was, I was at this event with some pastors probably a month ago now. I don't know if you ever had like one of those events and you're sitting in a circle with some guys and somebody asks a question, and you're like, I don't really want to answer this question. It's a little too deep. I wanted to keep things a little more surface and shallow, please. Uh, but one of the pastors asked, we're sitting about five or six of us, and he said, um, okay, you guys are not in full-time ministry in five years. What happened? And we probably for just about an hour talked. Because here's what I found. Let me ask you it this way. In five years, you've wrecked your life. Satan got a hold of you, and you became the worst version of yourself, and you were given over to your sins. Here's the question. What happened? And most people, maybe not the moment I say it, but if you had an hour with a journal, and you could be honest, and no one would ever read it, okay, all, the, all those little airbags, you would know how you're going to fall apart. Or you're just, and I don't mean this in a mean way, or you're completely self-unaware. Most people know. Most people know I like alcohol too much. That's how I'd fall apart. Most people know it's, it's a love of money that could destroy my life and wreck my family. People know it's, it's the lady at work who's younger than me that I've been being way too nice to. And this could really get, people know, you know how your life would fall apart. The hard thing is admitting it, if only to yourself, and then doing something about it to put some borders up, boundaries up, barriers up, so that that doesn't happen. And as soon as, like, you decide to do that, the worst part of you will not want to do that. Like, what's wrong? Which leads to the final thing that we need to learn from this battle is that we need to learn how to set the city on fire. Look at verse 8. And as soon as you've taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So here's what he tells them. You know, you're gonna, you gotta know your enemy. We talked about that. You gotta be creative. We talked about that. He says, you gotta set the city on fire. It's like, yikes, sounds kind of intense. Can we keep some of it? Like, I know we can keep the plunder, but we gotta set everything else on fire. I, here's the idea. The idea is you have to get rid of it all. There are certain things. So the Bible says, the old English way of saying it is mortify our sin. Okay, it's like kill it. We like to manage our sin. Like let's keep it somewhat small but around so I can grab it if I need it, right? We're told to kill sin. We like to slap it, maybe punch it, maybe kick it. We don't really want to kill it. And there's this imagery. You'll see this in a minute because he's going to say kill the king. So the whole, God commands him to do four things. Ambush the city, done, check. Get the plunder, check. 
Uh, burn the city, he's about to do that, and kill the king. The last two are about getting to the heart of something. The temptation in our life is to leave part of our sin undealt with, and we kind of nurse it. I have a friend, and he pastors in New York City, and obviously that's a very interesting place to live, and there's lots of things that happen in New York City. And he said that there was a guy in his church, imagine this happening to you, or ladies, imagine this happening to your husband or, or your brother or somebody. He's got a guy in his church, successful business guy, single, good-looking business guy, walks out of the investment bank, and there's an escort. He said, described her as the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. She walked up to him, puts her card on his chest, and I can't tell you what she said to him, but I can give you the, 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 the euphemism. Call me and I will give you the time of your life, and you will never forget it. The guy said it took him three years to throw the card away. He never called. It took him three years. Look, I don't know where he kept it. I don't know how often he looked at it. What have you been holding on to that you need to set on fire? Joshua goes, he fights the battle. In verse nine, it says this, so they sent them out and they went to the place of ambush and they lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai, but Joshua spent the night among the people. Notice Joshua's fighting the battle with the people. In fact, a careful reading will show you that Joshua is doing the most difficult work. The temptation, the more you're in leadership and the more status you have and the more influence you have and the more power you have is to not be a part of hard things. A careful reading will show you that he's doing the hardest work. He's letting the other group go ambush. That's the fun part. He's doing the fleeing. This is the I hope I'm fast enough job. He's with the guys saying, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna ask you to do something I'm not gonna do because leaders can't point the way they have to lead the way. It's a testimony to Joshua's character and the lessons he's learned uh, because of his failure. So verses 10 through 17 is the battle. And then in verse 18, something interesting happens. Then the Lord said to Joshua, I'm in verse 18, stretch out the javelin that's in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place as soon as they had stretched out his hand. They ran and entered the city and captured it and set it on fire. Verse 20. And then the men of Ai looked back. Behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that, for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all of Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai, and the others came out from the city against them, so that they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side, and Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. Verse 23, we get to be talked about the king. But the king of Ai, they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. Very similar principle. I don't really have anything new to say about this. The, 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 the killing of the king and the burning of the city are communicating the same thing. We have to get to the nucleus, the locus, the nerve center of our sin and we have to deal with the heart of it. We have to cut off the head of it. That's the imagery here of the king being killed. They bring him, uh, if you look at verse 29, 
it says what Joshua did. And he hanged the king of Ai on the tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. Three things I want us to see. The first is that Jesus chooses and uses failures. We saw that. The second is that he helps us fight after the failure, and we learn the lessons there. The third is that we need renewal, both after failure and success. If you'll just look in your Bible, if you have a Bible on you, in, in verses 30 to 35, uh, there's usually subtitles for sections in your Bible. They're not inspired. They were just human, you know, who organized the Bible. They, they just try to tell you what the section's about. You'll see that it's called something like corporate renewal or covenant renewal. It's interesting that this chapter, after they're done, they're going to do something that in war strategy makes no sense. They're going to stop. They're st- they still got many enemies. They're going to stop. They're going to slow down. They're going to celebrate together. And this is called renewal. Now, renewal is different than revival. Renewal is something that we can bring by the grace of God. It's something that we can ask God for. It's something that we can personally experience. Revival comes and goes, and God's sovereign and brings it. I don't know if you've seen recently, hopefully some of you have or most of you have, what happened at Asbury, the Asbury revival. I had a friend, he went there, and he said that he got there And he said, first of all, he said, when I went there and I walked in the room, he said, it felt like a bad Baptist service from 1990. But then he said, I realize it's it's a revival for Generation Z. And Generation Z has been overly stimulated. Everything is big and loud and social media and filtered. And God is bringing a simple revival for Gen Z. He said, I climbed up into the balcony and six hours felt like 10 minutes. Amazing. We love revival. We, I, I, I'd encourage you at some point, I went and saw it in theaters, I'd encourage you at some point to see the Jesus Revolution. It's about the Jesus movement of the 70s and what God was doing among the hippies. The whole Calvary Chapel movement, which is one of the greatest movements of the 20th century. If you ever see a Calvary Chapel church, it came out of this movement. The leader of that movement was a guy named Chuck Smith. Many people think he was more influential than Billy Graham, but just no one knows about him. There's this moment in the movie where a guy from, this is all true, a guy from Time Magazine flies in because he doesn't understand what's happening with the hippies. And he meets with Chuck Smith, and he says, and they, he, they go down to Pirate Bay, and Pirate Bay was where they would do all their baptisms. They still do baptisms there to this day. They go down to Pirate Bay, and the guy from Time Magazine walks up to Chuck Smith and says, I heard you're baptizing hippies here. How many hippies are you baptizing? And Chuck Smith goes, about 1,000 a week. 1,000 a week. That's revival. Renewal has two components. Tim Keller, who I'm quoting twice in the sermon, I guess, um, he studied this, and he said renewal always has two components. Number one, a rediscovery of the gospel. Sin and grace become real and personal to you in a new way. Secondly, corporate prayer. Those are the two components of renewal. And he said in corporate prayer, it's not just coming together and praying although Christians don't do that enough. He said, renewal comes when you pray for lost people with passion and you confess your sins publicly. Now that's the two things that 
when we come together, people do the least usually. We might give a nod to our lost friends. We're not going to cry about them. We may, maybe, if we're feeling uniquely spiritual, we may confess a safe sin to somebody. I want us to end by just seeing the renewal that happens here. In verse 30, it says this, At that time, that's after the war, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, at Mount Ebal. We'll come back to why there. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones. Why that? Upon which no man had wielded an iron tool. The whole point is man will add no effort to his salvation. That's the symbolism of this altar. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. He's putting the written word of God back in the center of the people's lives of Israel. Look what it says here. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel. Now, so basically, here's the image. There's these two, they're really more like hills. They're not really, you could call them mountains, but they look more like hills. There's these two hills, Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal. They are the, the immediate center of the geography of Israel. They're the very center of uh, Israel's geography. In the middle is this little valley called Shechem. And he puts half the people on this side and half the people on that side. And, and one mountain, Mount Gerizim, was the Mount of Blessing and Mount Ebal was the Mount of Cursing. What's interesting and probably surprising to the people is that he put the altar on the Mount of Cursing. He was trying to communicate something. The place of sacrifice needs to be where the place of sin was. There needs to be a sacrifice where there has been sin. What a great picture of the gospel. And then as the final part of renewal, he reads the word to them. Look what it says here. And afterwards he read, I want you to see how often the word all is used. And afterwards he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read to all of the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Part of the way renewal happens is when you put the word of God back at the center of the church and you say this, we are committing to teach all of God's word to all of God's people. We say here it takes the whole Bible to make the whole church or to make the whole Christian. And the great temptation in churches and with pastors is to teach some of God's word to all of God's people. The reason we walk through books of the Bible and this week I'm like, oh man, we're talking about war for an hour. It's just a commitment to say, let's teach all of the Bible to all of God's people and let's trust him to see what happens. I, I don't know where you guys are with all this, but if we end where we began, I don't know where you feel like you need a second chance. If you're young, you may feel like nowhere yet, but there will be a time in your, in your life where you're gonna feel like you need a second chance and you're gonna feel like you're a failure. And hopefully in that moment, you're gonna remember this story and you're gonna remember the grace of God in Joshua because I've seen, uh, apart from, uh, basically what I've seen is, if you don't have Jesus to go to with your failures, you tend to do one of two things. You tend to either bury your failure or blame your failure on other people. You go, I can't ever tell anybody about what I did in college. 
or I can't tell anybody about this addiction. I can't tell anybody about how messed up my marriage is. It's got to go deep. I got to lie to myself about it. I got to avoid it. I got to avoid people who ask me about it. I got to set my whole life up to avoid my failures. That's one option. The other option people do is they blame everybody else, right? <laughs> Millennials love to blame their parents. We blame our genetics. We blame our spouse. We blame our job. <laughs> we blame our boss. The answer, according to the Bible, for failure is not to bury it and not to blame it, but to say, I believe God can do something in and through this. Because here's the truth. Uh, you know, we, we've talked about needing a second chance, and that's great. And we believe here in a second chance, and a third chance, and a 27th chance, and a 55th chance. Uh, but what you'll need in life, and you'll know this, is you'll need more than just a second chance. You know, you know the guy in the Bible who got the ultimate second chance? His name was Noah. I mean, is there a better second chance than, uh, we're going to start over with you and your family? I mean, that's the ultimate second chance. Nobody else is here. Just eight of you get off the ark, and what does Noah do within two days? He's drunk. We need more than a second chance. We need more than a chance to do it again. We need someone to do it for us. Jesus Christ comes, and he is our great substitute who lives the life we can't live, who dies and is our sacrifice in the place of our sin. Do you remember the battle? I didn't talk about it a lot, but there's this moment where it says that Joshua holds up the javelin, and that's kind of the moment of victory in the whole battle. Well, today we don't hold up the javelin. We hold up the cross of Jesus Christ. And we say it's because of what Jesus Christ has done. We are no longer fighting for victory. We are fighting from victory. What we're gonna do in just a minute here, I'm gonna pray, we're gonna sing a song, and then we're gonna take communion. And just communion is basically us trying to do verses 30 to 35. It's us trying to remember and renew our hearts again. Because verses 30 to 35 is actually what Moses writes them and tells them to do in Deuteronomy 27. And what Jesus tells us to do at the end of all of the gospels and what the apostle Paul tells us to do when he writes to the Corinthians is he says, take this cup, take this bread, do this often in remembrance of Christ. I pray that this would be a time, as we're gonna take communion in a few minutes, this would be a time where you, in a new way, personally rediscover the gospel and where you are encouraged and invigorated to fight your next battle, not for victory, but from victory. Let's pray. Lord, we talked about a lot from an interesting text on fighting a battle today. And the truth is that the... The promised land that we see in the book of Joshua is the problem land for people. And that our lives, we're not to heaven yet. And there are many battles to fight. Some people in here are feeling like they're fighting a battle in their marriage. Some people are fighting a battle personally. Some people are fighting a battle with their kids. Some people feel like they're fighting a health battle, Lord. Whatever it is, I pray that you would help these principles, Lord to go deep into our hearts, Lord. So many of us, we've fought a battle before and we've failed. And I pray that you would help us to get back up. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, a righteous person falls seven times, but he gets back up. It's not how many times you fall, it's how many times you get back up. Would you help us to get back up by the grace of God? Would you help us to be renewed even as we go into a time of communion? Would you make, as, as Martin Luther said, would you make it as if Jesus Christ died yesterday rose today and is coming back tomorrow. Would you make it that real and near to us? We pray this in Jesus' name.